Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Safe and sound aboard a canoe on the lake, Jimmy can straighten things out with Molly. But how can he possibly win over her bulldog of a father? P.G. Woodhouse, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. The vintage episodes are coming back. Did we raise all the money we needed to? No, but I don't like going backwards. I think I went too big too soon. So we're going to do one vintage episode on Tuesdays and one episode of new content on Fridays. Next up will be A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. This way you get some Christmas stories along with the ongoing Woodhouse tale. Please become a monthly supporter and help us keep this good thing going. Go to classictalesaudiobooks.com and become a monthly supporter for as little as $5 a month. As a thank you gesture, we'll send you a coupon code every month for at least $8 off any audiobook order. Thank you so much. At the end of last week's episode, Jimmy had placed Molly bodily into a canoe and rowed out onto the lake. And now, The Intrusion of Jimmy, Part 5 of 7, by P.G. Woodhouse. Chapter 19, On the Lake In making love, as in every other branch of life, consistency is the quality most to be aimed at. To hedge is fatal. A man must choose the line of action that he judges to be best suited to his temperament and hold to it without deviation. If Lochinvar snatches the maiden up on his saddle-bow, he must continue in that vein. He must not fancy that, Having accomplished the feat, he can resume the episode on lines of devotional humility. Prehistoric man, who conducted his courtship with a club, never fell into the error of apologizing when his bride complained of headache. Jimmy did not apologize. The idea did not enter his mind. He was feeling prehistoric. His heart was beating fast, and his mind was in a whirl, but the one definite thought that came to him during the first few seconds of the journey was that he ought to have done this earlier. This was the right way. Pick her up and carry her off, and leave uncles and fathers and butter-haired peers of the realm to look after themselves. This was the way. Alone, together, in their own little world of water, with nobody to interrupt and nobody to overhear. He should have done this before. He had wasted precious golden time, hanging about, while futile men chattered to her of things that could not possibly be of interest. 
But he had done the right thing at last. He had got her. She must listen to him now. She could not help listening. They were the only inhabitants of this new world. He looked back over his shoulder at the world they had left. The last of the drivers had rounded the clump of laurels and was standing at the edge of the water, gazing perplexedly after the retreating canoe. These poets put a thing very neatly sometimes, said Jimmy reflectively, as he dug the paddle into the water. The man who said, Distance lends enchantment to the view, for instance. Driver looks quite nice when you see him as far away as this, with a good strip of water in between. Molly, gazing over the side of the boat into the lake, abstained from feasting her eyes on the picturesque spectacle. Why did you do it? she said in a low voice. Jimmy shipped the paddle and allowed the canoe to drift. The ripple of the water against the prow sounded clear and thin in the stillness. The world seemed asleep. The sun blazed down, turning the water to flame. The air was hot, with the damp electrical heat that heralds a thunderstorm. Molly's face looked small and cool in the shade of her big hat. Jimmy, as he watched her, felt that he had done well. This was indeed the way. Why did you do it? She said again. I had to. Take me back. No. He took up the paddle and placed a broader strip of water between the two worlds, then paused once more. I have something to say to you first, he said. She did not answer. He looked over his shoulder again. His lordship had disappeared. Do you mind if I smoke? She nodded. He filled his pipe carefully and lighted it. The smoke moved sluggishly up through the still air. There was a long silence. A fish jumped close by, falling back in a shower of silver drops. Molly started at the sound and half turned. There was a fish, she said, as a child might have done. Jimmy knocked the ashes out of his pipe. What made you do it? he asked abruptly, echoing her own question. She drew her fingers slowly through the water without speaking. You know what I mean, Driva told me. She looked up with a flash of spirit, which died away as she spoke. What right? She stopped and looked away again. None, said Jimmy, but I wish you would tell me. She hung her head. Jimmy bent forward and touched her hand. Don't, he said. For God's sake, don't. You mustn't. I must, she said miserably. You shan't. It's wicked. I must. It's no good talking about it. It's too late. It's not. You must break it off today. She shook her head. Her fingers still dabbled mechanically in the water. The sun was hidden now behind a grey veil, which deepened into a sullen black over the hill behind the castle. The heat had grown more oppressive, with the threat of coming storm. What made you do it? he asked again. Don't let's talk about it, please. He had a momentary glimpse of her face. There were tears in her eyes. At the sight his self-control snapped. You shan't, he cried. It's ghastly. I won't let you. You must understand now. You must know what you are to me. Do you think I shall let you? A low growl of thunder rumbled through the stillness, 
like the muttering of a sleepy giant. The black cloud that had hung over the hill had crept closer. The heat was stifling. In the middle of the lake, some fifty yards distant, lay the island, cool and mysterious in the gathering darkness. Jimmy broke off and seized a paddle. On this side of the island was a boathouse, a little creek covered over with boards and capable of sheltering an ordinary rowboat. He ran the canoe in just as the storm began and turned her broadside on so they could watch the rain, which was sweeping over the lake in sheets. He began to speak again, more slowly now. I think I loved you from the first day I saw you on the ship, and then I lost you. I found you again by a miracle and lost you again. I found you here by another miracle, but this time I am not going to lose you. Do you think I'm going to stand by and see you taken from me by... by... He took her hand. Molly, you can't love him. It isn't possible. If I thought you did, I wouldn't try to spoil your happiness. I'd go away. But you don't. You can't. He's nothing, Molly. The canoe rocked as he leaned toward her. Molly. She said nothing. But for the first time, her eyes met his, clear and unwavering. He could read fear in them. Fear, not of himself, of something vague, something he could not guess at. But they shone with a light that conquered that fear as the sun conquers fire, and he drew her to him and kissed her again and again, murmuring incoherently. Suddenly she wrenched herself away, struggling like some wild thing. The boat plunged. I can't, she cried in a choking voice. I mustn't. Oh, I can't. He stretched out a hand and clutched at the rail that ran along the wall. The plunging ceased. He turned. She had hidden her face and was sobbing quietly with the forlorn hopelessness of a lost child. He made a movement toward her, but drew back. He felt dazed. The rain thudded and splashed on the wooden roof. A few drops trickled through a crack in the boards. He took off his coat and placed it gently over her shoulders. Molly. She looked up with wet eyes. Molly, dear, what is it? I mustn't. It isn't right. I don't understand. I mustn't, Jimmy. He moved cautiously forward, holding the rail till he was at her side, and took her in his arms. What is it, dear? Tell me. She clung to him without speaking. You aren't worrying about him, are you? About Driva? There's nothing to worry about. It'll be quite easy and simple. I'll tell him, if you like. He knows you don't care for him. And besides, there's a girl in London that he... No, no, it's not that. What is it, dear? What's troubling you? Jimmy... She stopped. He waited. Yes? Jimmy... My father wouldn't... Father... Father doesn't... Doesn't like me? She nodded miserably. A great wave of relief swept over Jimmy. He had imagined... He hardly knew what he had imagined. Some vast, insuperable obstacle. Some tremendous catastrophe whirling them asunder. He could have laughed aloud in his happiness. So this was it. 
This was the cloud that brooded over them, that Mr. McEachern did not like him. The angel guarding Eden with a fiery sword had changed into a policeman with a truncheon. He must learn to love me, he said lightly. She looked at him hopelessly. He could not see. He could not understand. And how could she tell him? Her father's words rang in her brain. He was crooked. He was here on some game. He was being watched. But she loved him. She loved him. Oh, how could she make him understand? She clung tighter to him, trembling. He became serious again. Dear, you mustn't worry, he said. It can't be helped. He'll come round. Once we're married, no, no. Oh, can't you understand? I couldn't. I couldn't. Jimmy's face whitened. He looked at her anxiously. But dear, he said, you can't. Do you mean to say, will that? He searched for a word. Stop you? He concluded. It must, she whispered. A cold hand clutched at his heart. His world was falling to pieces, crumbling under his eyes. But, but you love me, he said slowly. It was as if he were trying to find the key to a puzzle. I don't see. You couldn't. You can't. You're a man. You don't know. It's so different for a man. He's brought up all his life with the idea of leaving home. He goes away naturally. But, dear, you couldn't live at home all your life. Whoever you married. But this would be different. Father would never speak to me again. I should never see him again. He would go right out of my life. Jimmy, I couldn't. A girl can't cut away twenty years of her life and start fresh like that. I should be haunted. I should make you miserable. Every day a hundred little things would remind me of him, and I shouldn't be strong enough to resist them. You don't know how fond he is of me, how good he has always been. Ever since I can remember, we've been such friends. You've only seen the outside of him, and I know how different that is from what he really is. All his life, he has thought only of me. He has told me things about himself which nobody else dreams of, and I know that all these years he has been working just for me. Jimmy, you don't hate me for saying this, do you? Go on, he said, drawing her closer to him. I can't remember my mother. She died when I was quite little. So he and I have been the only ones. Till you came. Memories of those early days crowded her mind as she spoke, making her voice tremble. Half-forgotten trifles, many of them, fraught with the glamour and fragrance of past happiness. We have always been together. He trusted me, and I trusted him, and we saw things through together. When I was ill, he used to sit up all night with me, night after night. Once, I'd only gotten a little fever, really, but I thought I was terribly bad. I heard him come in late and called out to him, and he came straight in and sat and held my hand all through the night. And it was only by accident I found out later that it had been raining, and that he was soaked through. It might have killed him. We were partners, Jimmy dear. I couldn't do anything to hurt him now, could I? It wouldn't be square. Jimmy had turned away his head. 
for fear his face might betray what he was feeling. He was in a hell of unreasoning jealousy. He wanted her body and soul, and every word she said bit like a raw wound. A moment before, and he had felt that she belonged to him. Now, in the first shock of reaction, he saw himself a stranger, an intruder, a trespasser on holy ground. She saw the movement, and her intuition put her in touch with his thoughts. No, no, she cried. No, Jimmy, not that. Their eyes met, and he was satisfied. They sat there, silent. The rain had lessened its force, and it was falling now in a gentle shower. A strip of blue sky, pale and watery, showed through the grey over the hills. On the island close behind them, a thrush had begun to sing. What are we to do? she said at last. What can we do? We must wait, he said. It will all come right. It must. Nothing can stop us now. The rain had ceased. The blue had routed the grey and driven it from the sky. The sun, low down in the west, shone out bravely over the lake. The air was cool and fresh. Jimmy's spirits rose with a bound. He accepted the omen. This was the world as it really was, smiling and friendly, not grey, as he had fancied it. He had won. Nothing could alter that. What remained to be done was trivial. He wondered how he could ever have allowed it to weigh upon him. After a while, he pushed the boat out of its shelter onto the glittering water and seized a paddle. We must be getting back, he said. I wonder what the time is. I wish we could stay out forever, but it must be late. Molly? Yes? Whatever happens, you'll break off this engagement with Driva? Shall I tell him? I will if you like. No, I will. I'll write him a note, if I don't see him before dinner. Jimmy paddled on a few strokes. It's no good, he said suddenly. I can't keep it in. Molly, do you mind if I sing a bar or two? I've got a beastly voice, but I'm feeling rather happy. I'll stop as soon as I can. He raised his voice discordantly. Covertly, from beneath the shade of her big hat, Molly watched him with troubled eyes. The sun had gone down behind the hills, and the water had ceased to glitter. There was a suggestion of chill in the air. The great mass of the castle frowned down upon them, dark and forbidding in the dim light. She shivered. Chapter 20 A Lesson in Piquet Lord Drever, meanwhile, having left the waterside, lighted a cigarette and proceeded to make a reflective tour of the grounds. He felt aggrieved with the world. Molly's desertion in the canoe with Jimmy did not trouble him. He had other sorrows. One is never at one's best and sunniest when one has been forced by a ruthless uncle into abandoning the girl one loves and becoming engaged to another, to whom one is indifferent. Something of a jaundiced tinge stains one's outlook on life in such circumstances. Moreover, Lord Reaver was not by nature an introspective young man. But examining his position as he walked along, he found himself wondering whether it was not a little unheroic. He came to the conclusion that perhaps it was. Of course, Uncle Thomas could make it deucedly unpleasant for him if he kicked. That was the trouble. If only he had even 
say a couple thousands a year of his own. He might make a fight for it. But dash it, Uncle Tom could cut off supplies to such a frightful extent, if there was trouble, that he would have to go on living at Drever indefinitely, without so much as a fearful quid to call his own. Imagination boggled at the prospect. In the summer and autumn, when there was shooting, his lordship was not indisposed to stay at the home of his father's. But all the year round? Better a broken heart inside the radius than a sound one in the country in the winter. But by gad, mused his lordship, if I had as much as a couple, yes, dash it, even a couple of thousand a year, I'd chance it and ask Katie to marry me, dashed if I wouldn't. He walked on, drawing thoughtfully at his cigarette. The more he reviewed the situation, the less he liked it. There was only one bright spot in it, and this was the feeling that now money must surely get a shade less tight. Extracting the precious ore from Sir Thomas hitherto had been like pulling back teeth out of a bulldog. But now, on the strength of this infernal engagement, surely the uncle might reasonably be expected to scatter largesse to some extent. His lordship was just wondering whether, if approached in a softened mood, the other might not disgorge something quite big when a large, warm raindrop fell on his hand. From the bushes round about came an ever-increasing patter. The sky was leaden. He looked round him for shelter. He had reached the rose garden in the course of his perambulations. At the far end was a summer house. He turned up his coat collar and ran. As he drew near, he had heard a slow and dirge-like whistling proceeding from the interior. Plunging in out of breath, just as the deluge began, he found Hargate seated at the little wooden table with an earnest expression on his face. The table was covered with cards. Hargate had not yet been compelled to sprain his wrist, having adopted the alternative of merely refusing invitations to play billiards. Hello, Hargate, said his lordship. Isn't it coming down by Jove? Hargate glanced up, nodded without speaking, and turned his attention to the cards once more. He took one from the pack in his left hand, looked at it, hesitated for a moment, as if doubtful whereabouts on the table it would produce the most artistic effect, and finally put it face upward. Then he moved another card from the table and put it on top of the other one. Throughout the performance he whistled painfully. His lordship regarded his guest with annoyance. That looks frightfully exciting, he said disparagingly. What are you playing at, Patience? Hargate nodded again, this time without looking up. I don't sit there looking like a frog, said Lord Drever irritably. Talk, man! Hargate gathered up the cards and proceeded to shuffle them in a meditative manner, whistling the while. Oh, stop it, said his lordship. Hargate nodded and obediently put down the deck. Look here, said Lord Drever. This is boring me stiff. Let's have a game of something. Anything to pass away the time. Curse this rain. We shall be cooped up here till dinner at this rate. Ever played piquet? I could teach it to you in five minutes. A look almost of awe came into Hargate's face. The look of one who sees a miracle performed before his eyes. For years, he had been using all the large stock of diplomacy at his command to induce callow youths to play piquet with him. And here was this, admirable young man, this pearl among young men, positively offering to teach him the game. It was too much happiness. What had he done to deserve this? He felt as a toil-worn lion might feel if some antelope, 
instead of making its customary beeline for the horizon, were to trot up and insert its head between his jaws. I shouldn't mind being shown the idea, he said. He listened attentively, while Lord Drever explained at some length the principles that govern the game of piquet. Every now and then, he asked a question. It was evident that he was beginning to grasp the idea of the game. What exactly is re-peaking? he asked, as his lordship paused. It's like this, said his lordship, returning to his lecture. Yes, I see now, said the neophyte. They began playing. Lord Drever, who was only to be expected in a contest between teacher and student, won the first two hands. Hargate won the next. I've got the hang of it all right now, he said complacently. It's a simple sort of game. Make it more exciting, don't you think, if we played for something? All right, said Lord Drever, slowly. If you like. He would not have suggested it himself, but after all, dash it, if the man really asked for it, it was not his fault if the winning of a hand should have given the fellow the impression that he knew all there was to be known about Piquet. Of course, Piquet was a game where skill was practically bound to win, but after all, Hargate probably had plenty of money. He could afford it. All right, said his lordship again. How much? Something fairly moderate. Ten bob a hundred. There is no doubt that his lordship ought, at this suggestion, to have corrected the novice's notion that ten shillings a hundred was fairly moderate. He knew that it was possible for a poor player to lose four hundred points in a twenty minutes game, and usual for him to lose two hundred. But he let the thing go. Very well, he said. Twenty minutes later, Hargate was looking somewhat ruefully at the score sheet. I owe you eighteen shillings, he said. Shall I pay you now, or shall we settle up in a lump after we've finished? What about stopping now? said Lord Drever. It's quite fine out. No, let's go on. I've got nothing to do till dinner, and I don't suppose you have. His lordship's conscience made one last effort. You'd much better stop, you know, Hargate, really, he said. You can lose a frightful lot at this game. My dear Drever, said Hargate stiffly, I can look after myself, thanks. Of course, if you think you are risking too much, by all means. Oh, if you don't mind, said his lordship, outraged, I'm only too frightfully pleased. Only remember, I warned you. I'll bear it in mind. By the way, before we start, care to make it a sovereign a hundred? Lord Drever could not afford to play piquet for a sovereign a hundred, or indeed to play piquet for money at all. But after his adversary's innuendo, it was impossible for a young gentleman of spirit to admit the humiliating fact. He nodded. About time, I fancy said Hargate, looking at his watch an hour later, that we were going in to dress for dinner. His lordship made no reply. He was wrapped in thought. Let's see. That's twenty pounds you owe me, isn't it? continued Hargate. Shocking bad luck you had. They went out into the rose garden. Jolly, everything smells after the rain, said Hargate, who seemed to have struck a conversational patch, freshened everything up. His lordship did not appear to have noticed it. He seemed to be thinking of something else. His air was pensive and abstracted. There's just time, said Hargate, looking at his watch again, for a short stroll.
I want to have a talk with you. Oh, said Lord Drever. His air did not belie his feelings. He looked pensive, and was pensive. It was deuced awkward, this twenty pounds business. Hargate was watching him covertly. It was his business to know other people's business, for he knew that Lord Drever was impecunious, and depended for supplies entirely on a prehensile uncle. For the success of the proposal he was about to make, he depended on this fact. "'Who's this man, Pitt?' asked Hargate. "'Oh, pal of mine,' said his lordship. "'Why?' "'I can't stand the fellow.' "'I think he's a good chap,' said his lordship. "'In fact,' remembering Jimmy's good Samaritanism, "'I know he is. Why don't you like him?' "'I don't know. I don't.' "'Oh,' said his lordship indifferently. He was in no mood to listen to the likes and dislikes of other men. "'Look here, Drever,' said Hargate. "'I want you to do something for me. I want you to get Pitt out of the place.' Lord Drever eyed his guest curiously. "'Nay,' he said. Hargate repeated his remark. "'You seem to have mapped out quite a programme for me,' said Lord Drever. "'Get him out of it,' continued Hargate vehemently. Jimmy's prohibition against billiards had hit him hard. He was suffering the torments of Tantalus. The castle was full of young men of the kind to whom he most resorted. Easy marks, every one, and here he was, simply through Jimmy, careened like a disabled battleship. It was maddening. Make him go. You invited him here? He doesn't expect to stop indefinitely, I suppose. If you left, he'd have to, too. What you must do is go back to London tomorrow. You can easily make some excuse. He'll have to go with you. Then you can drop him in London and come back. That's what you must do. A delicate pink flush might have been seen to spread itself over Lord Drever's face. He began to look like an angry rabbit. He had not a great deal of pride in his composition, but the thought of the ignominious role that Hargate was sketching out for him stirred what he had to its shallow bottom. Talking on, Hargate managed to add the last straw. Of course, he said. That money you lost to me at Piquet, what was it? Twenty? Twenty pounds, wasn't it? Well, we would look on that as cancelled, of course. That'll be all right. His lordship exploded. Will it? he cried, pink to the ears. Will it, by George? I'll pay you every frightful penny of it tomorrow, and then you can clear out instead of Pitt. What do you take me for, I should like to know? A fool, if you refuse my offer. I've a jolly good mind to give you a most frightful kicking. I shouldn't try if I were you. It's not the sort of game you'd shine at. Better stick to Piquet. If you think I can't pay your rotten money, I do. But if you can, so much the better. Money is always useful. I may be a fool in some ways. You understate it, my dear man. But I'm not a cad. You're getting quite rosy, Drever. Wrath is good for the complexion. And if you think you can bribe me, you never made a bigger mistake in your life. Yes, I did, said Hargate, when I thought you had some glimmerings of intelligence. But if it gives you any pleasure to behave like a juvenile lead in a melodrama, by all means do. Personally, I shouldn't have thought the game would be worth the candle. But if your keen sense of honour compels you to pay the twenty pounds, all right. You mentioned tomorrow. That will suit me. So we'll let it go at that. He walked off, 
leaving Lord Drever filled with the comfortable glow that comes to the weak man, who for once has displayed determination. He felt that he must not go back from his dignified standpoint. That money would have to be paid, and on the morrow. Hargate was the sort of man who could, and would, make it exceedingly unpleasant for him if he failed. A debt of honor was not a thing to be trifled with. But he felt quite safe. He knew he could get the money when he pleased. It showed, he reflected philosophically, how out of evil cometh good. His greater misfortune, the engagement, would, as it were, neutralize the less, for it was ridiculous to suppose that Sir Thomas, having seen his ends accomplished, and being presumably in a spacious mood in consequence, would not be amenable to a request for a mere twenty pounds. He went on into the hall. He felt strong and capable. He had shown Hargate the stuff there was in him. He was Spenny Drever, the man of blood and iron, the man with whom it were best not to trifle. But it was really, come to think of it, uncommonly lucky that he was engaged to Molly. He recoiled from the idea of attempting, unfortified by that fact, to extract twenty pounds from Sir Thomas for a card debt. In the hall, he met Saunders. I have been looking for your lordship, said the butler. Eh? Well, here I am. Just so, your lordship. Miss McEachern entrusted me with this note to deliver to you, in the event of her not being able to see you before dinner personally, your lordship. Right-ho, thanks. He started to go upstairs, opening the envelope as he went. What could the girl be writing to him about? Surely she wasn't going to start sending him love letters or any of that frightful rot. Deuce difficult it would be to play up to that sort of thing. He stopped on the first landing to read the note, and at the opening line his jaw fell. The envelope fluttered to the ground. Oh, my sainted aunt, he moaned, clutching at the banisters. Now I am in the soup. Chapter 21 Loathsome Gifts There are doubtless men so constructed that they can find themselves accepted as suitors without any particular whirl of emotion. King Solomon probably belonged to this class, and even Henry VIII must have become a trifle blasé in time. But to the average man, the sensations are complex and overwhelming. A certain stunned feeling is perhaps predominant. Blended with this relief, the relief of a general who has brought a difficult campaign to a successful end, or of a member of a forlorn hope who finds that the danger is over and that he is still alive. To this must be added a newly born sense of magnificence. Our suspicion that we were something rather out of the ordinary run of men is suddenly confirmed. Our bosom heaves with complacency, and the world has nothing more to offer. With some, there is an alloy of apprehension, in the metal of their happiness. And the strain of an engagement sometimes brings with it even a faint shadow of regret. She makes me buy things. One swain in the third quarter of his engagement was overheard to moan to a friend. Two new ties only yesterday. He seemed to be debating with himself whether human nature could stand the strain. But whatever tragedies may cloud the end of the period, its beginning at least is bathed in sunshine. Jimmy, regarding his lathered face in the glass as he dressed for dinner that night, marveled at the excellence of this best of all possible worlds. No doubts disturbed him. That the relations between Mr. McEachern and himself 
offered a permanent bar to his prospects, he did not believe. For the moment, he declined to consider the existence of the ex-constable at all. In a world that contained Molly, there was no room for other people. They were not in the picture. They did not exist. To him, musing contentedly over the goodness of life, there entered, in the furtive manner habitual to that unreclaimed buccaneer, Spike Mullins. It may have been that Jimmy read his own satisfaction and happiness into the faces of others, but it certainly seemed to him that there was a sort of restrained joyousness about Spike's demeanor. The Bowery boy's shuffles on the carpet were almost a dance. His face seemed to glow beneath his crimson hair. Well, said Jimmy, and how goes the world with young Lord Fitzmullins? Spike, have you ever been best man? What's that, boss? Best man at a wedding. Chap who stands by the bridegroom with a hand on the scruff of his neck to see that he goes through with it. Fellow who looks after everything. Crowds the money on to the minister at the end of the ceremony, and then goes off and marries the first bridesmaid and lives happily ever after. Spike shook his head. I ain't got no use for getting married, boss. Spike, the misogynist. You wait, Spike. Some day love will awaken your heart and you'll start writing poetry. It's not that kind of mug, boss, protested the Bowery boy. I ain't got no use for girls. It's a mutts game. This was rank heresy. Jimmy laid down the razor from motives of prudence and proceeded to lighten Spike's reprehensible darkness. Spike, you're an ass, he said. You don't know anything about it. If you had any sense at all, you'd understand that the only thing worth doing in life is to get married. You boneheaded bachelors make me sick. Think what it would mean to you having a wife. Think of going out on a cold winter's night to crack a crib, knowing that there would be a cup of hot soup waiting for you when you got back, and your slippers all warmed and comfortable. And then she'd sit on your knee, and you'd tell her how you shot the policeman, and you'd examine the swag together. Why, I can't imagine anything cosier. Perhaps there would be little spikes running about the house. Can't you see them jumping with joy as you slide in through the window and told the great news? Father's killed a policeman, cry the tiny eager voices. Candy is served out all round in honour of the event. Golden-haired little Jimmy Mullins, my godson, gets a dime for having thrown a stone at a plain-clothes detective that afternoon. All is joy and wholesome revelry. Take my word for it, Spike, there's nothing like domesticity. There was a goyle once, said Spike, meditatively. Only I was never her steady. She married a cop. She wasn't worthy of you, Spike, said Jimmy, sympathetically. A girl capable of going to the bad like that would never have done for you. You must pick some nice, sympathetic girl with romantic admiration for your line of business. Meanwhile, let me finish shaving or I shall be late for dinner. Great doings on tonight, Spike. Spike became animated. Sure, boys, that's just what I... If you could collect all the blue blood that will be under this roof tonight, Spike, into one vat, you'd be able to start a dyeing works. Don't try it, though. They mightn't like it. By the way, have you seen anything more? Of course you have. What I mean is, have you talked at all with that valet man? The one you think is a detective? Why, boss, that's just... I hope for his own sake he's a better performer than my old friend Gala. That man is getting on my nerves, Spike. He pursues me like a smell dog. I expect he's lurking out in the passage now. Did you see him? Did I? Boss, why... Jimmy inspected Spike gravely. Spike, he said. There's something on your mind. You're trying to say something. What is it? Out with it. 
Spike's excitement vented itself in a rush of words. Gee, boss, there's been doings tonight for fair. Mikoko's still buzzing, sure thing. I say, when I was to Sir Thomas's dressing room this afternoon... What? Surest thing you know. Just before the storm come on, when it was all dark as could be, well, I was... Jimmy interrupted. In Sir Thomas's dressing room? What the... Spike looked somewhat embarrassed. He grinned apologetically and shuffled his feet. I've got them, boss, he said with a smirk. Got them? Got what? These. Spike plunged a hand in his pocket and drew forth, in a glittering mass, Lady Julia Blunt's Rope of Diamonds. Chapter 22 Two of a Trade Disagree One hundred thousand plunks, murmured Spike, gazing lovingly at them. I says to myself, the boss ain't got no time to be getting after them himself. He's too busy these days with jollying along the swells. So it's up to me, I says, cause the boss'll be tickled to death all right, all right, if we can get away with them. So I... Jimmy gave tongue with an energy that amazed his faithful follower. The nightmare horror of the situation had affected him much as a sudden blow in the parts about the waistcoat might have done. But now... As Spike would have said, he caught up with his breath. The smirk faded slowly from the other's face as he listened. Not even in the Bowery, full as it was of candid friends, had he listened to such a trenchant summing up of his mental and moral deficiencies. Boys, he protested. That's just a sketchy outline, said Jimmy, pausing for breath. I can't do you justice impromptu like this. You're too vast and overwhelming. But, boss, what's eaten you? Ain't you tickled? Tickled? Jimmy sawed the air. Tickled? You lunatic! Can't you see what you've done? I've got them, said Spike, whose mind was not readily receptive of new ideas. It seemed to him that Jimmy missed the main point. Didn't I tell you there was nothing doing when you wanted to take those things the other day? Spike's face cleared. As he had suspected, Jimmy had missed the point. Why say, boss, yes, sure. But those was little dinky things. Of course, yous wouldn't stand for swiping chicken feed like them. But these is different. These diamonds is boids. It's one hundred thousand plunks for these. Spike, said Jimmy with painful calm. Huh? Will you listen for a moment? Sure. I know it's practically hopeless to get an idea into your head. One wants a proper outfit, drills, blasting powder and so on. But there's just a chance, perhaps if I talk slowly. Has it occurred to you, Spike, my bonny blue-eyed Spike, that every other man, more or less, in this stately home of England, is a detective who has probably received instructions to watch you like a lynx? Do you imagine that your blameless past is a sufficient safeguard? I suppose you think that these detectives will say to themselves, now whom shall we suspect? We must leave out Spike Mullins, of course, because he naturally wouldn't dream of doing such a thing. But it can't be dear old Spike who's got the stuff. But, boss, interposed Spike brightly, I ain't. That's right, I ain't got it. Use has. Jimmy looked at the speaker with admiration. After all, there was a breezy delirium about Spike's methods of thought that was rather stimulating once you got used to it. The worst of it was that it did not fit in with practical, everyday life. Under different conditions, 
say, during convivial evenings at Bloomingdale. He could imagine the Bowery boy being a charming companion. How pleasantly, for instance, such remarks as that last would while away the monotony of a padded cell. But, laddie, he said with steely affection, listen once more. Reflect. Ponder. Does it not seep into your consciousness that we are, as it were, subtly connected in this house in the minds of certain bad persons? Are we not imagined by Mr. McEckern, for instance, to be working hand in hand like brothers? Do you fancy that Mr. McEckern, chatting with his tame sleuth-hound over their cigars, will have been reticent on this point? I think not. How do you propose to baffle that gentlemanly sleuth, Spike, who, I may mention once again, has rarely moved more than two yards away from me since his arrival? An involuntary chuckle escaped Spike. Sure, boss, that's all right. All right, is it? Well, well, what makes you think it is all right? I say, boss, those sleuths is out of business. A merry grin split Spike's face. It's funny, boss. Gee, it's got a circus skinned. Listen, they's been and arrest each other. Jimmy moodily revised his former view. Even in Bloomingdale, this sort of thing would be coldly received. Genius must ever walk alone. Spike would have to get along without hope of meeting a kindred spirit, another fellow being in tune with his brain processes. That's right, chuckled Spike. Leastways it ain't. No, no said Jimmy, soothingly. I quite understand. It's this way, boss. One of them has been in arrest the other mug. They have a scrap, each thinking the other guy was after the jewels, and not knowing they was both sleuths, and now one of them has been in taking the other off, and... There were tears of innocent joy in Spike's eyes. And locked him into the coal cellar. What on earth do you mean? Spike giggled helplessly. Listen, boss, it's this way. Gee, it beat the band. When it's all dark, because of the storm coming in, I'm in the dressing room, chasing around for the jewel box, and just as I gets a line on it, gee, I hears a footstep coming down the passage, very soft, straight for the door. Was I to the bed? That's right, I says to myself. Here's one of the sleuth guys what's been and got wise to me, and he's coming in to put the grip on me. So I gets up quick, and I hides behind the curtain. There's a curtain at the side of the room. There's dude's suits and things hanging behind it. I chases myself in there and stands waiting for the sleuth to come in. Because then, you see, I'm going to try and get busy before he can see who I am. It's pretty dark because of the storm. And jolt him one on the point of the jaw, and then, while he's down and out, chase myself for the servant's hall. Yes, said Jimmy. Well, this guy, he gets to the door and opens it, and I'm just getting ready for one sudden boister speed, when there jumps out from the room on the other side of the passage, you know the room, another guy, and gets the rapid strangle halt on the first mug. Say, wouldn't that make you glad you hadn't gone to the circus? Honest, it was better than Coney Island. Go on, what happened then? They falls to scrapping good and hard. They couldn't see me, and I couldn't see them. But I could hear them bumping about and slugging each other to beat the band. And by and by, one of the mugs puts the other mug to the bed, so that he goes down and takes the count. And then I hears a click, and I know what that is. It's one of the gazebos has put the irons on the other gazebo. Call them A and B, 
suggested Jimmy. Then I hears him, the first mug, strike a light, cause it's dark there cause of the storm, and then he says, Got yous, have I? He says, I've had my eye on yous, thinking yous was up to something of this kind. I've been watching yous. I knew the voice. It's that mug what calls himself Sir Thomas's Valley. And the other... Jimmy burst into a roar of laughter. Don't, Spike, this is more than man was meant to stand. Do you mean to tell me it is my bright, brainy, persevering friend Gala who has been handcuffed and locked in the coal cellar? Spike grinned broadly. Sure, that's right, he said. It's a judgment, said Jimmy delightedly. That's what it is. No man has a right to be such a consummate ass as Gala. It isn't decent. There had been moments when McEachern's faithful employee had filled Jimmy with an odd sort of fury, a kind of hurt pride, almost to the extent of making him wish that he really could have been the desperado McEachern fancied him. Never in his life before had he sat still under a challenge, and this espionage had been one. Behind the clumsy watcher, he had seen always the self-satisfied figure of McEachern. If there had been anything subtle about the man from Dodson's, he could have forgiven him, but there was not. Years of practice had left Spike with a sort of sixth sense as regarded representatives of the law. He could pierce the most cunning disguise. But in the case of Gaylor, even Jimmy could detect the detective. Go on, he said. Spike proceeded. Well, the other mug, the one down and out on the floor with the irons on. Gaylor, in fact, said Jimmy. Handsome, dashing Gala. Sure, well, he's too busy catching up with his breath to shoot it back swift. But after he's been in doing the deep breathing strut for a while, he says, You mutt, he says. Yous is to the bad. Yous made a break, you have. That's right. Surest thing you know. He puts it different, but that's what it means. I'm a sleuth, he says. Take these things off. Meaning the irons. Does the other mug? The valley gazebo give him the glad eye? Not so's you could notice it. He gives him the merry ha-ha. He says that that's the worst tale that's ever been handed to him. Tell it to Sweeney, he says. I knows yous. Yous warms yourself into the house as a guest when yous is really after the lady's jewels. At these cruel words, the other mug, Gala, gets hot under the collar. I'm a sure enough sleuth, he says. I blow into this house at the special request of Mr. McEachern, the American gent. The other mug hands the lemon again. Tell it to the king of Denmark, he says. This cop's the limit. Use has enough gall for ten strong men, he says. Show me to Mr. McEachern, says Gaylor. He'll, uh, crouch, is that it? Vouch, suggested Jimmy, meaning give the glad hand to. That's right, vouch. I wondered what he meant at the time. He'll vouch for me, he says. That puts him all right, he thinks. But no, he's still in Dutch, cause the valley mug says nix on that. I ain't going to chase around the house with yous looking for Mr. McEachern. It's yous for the coal cellar, me man. And we'll see what yous has to say when I makes me report to Sir Thomas. Well, that's to the good, says Gaylor. Tell Sir Thomas. I'll explain to him. Not me, says the valley. Sir Thomas has a hard evening's wake before him. Jolly and along the swells what's coming to see this stage piece they're acting. I ain't going to worry him till he's good and ready. To the coal cellar for use. Go on. And off they goes. And I gets busy again, 
swipes the jewels, and chases myself here. Jimmy wiped his eyes. Have you ever heard of poetic justice, Spike? He asked. This is it. But in this hour of mirth and goodwill, we must not forget... Spike interrupted. Pleased by the enthusiastic reception of his narrative, he proceeded to point out the morals that were to be deduced therefrom. So you see, boss, he says, it's all to the merry. When they rob us for the jewels and finds them gone, they'll think this gala guy swiped them. They won't think of us. Jimmy looked at the speaker gravely. Of course, said he. What a reasoner you are, Spike. Gala was just opening the door from the outside, by your account, when the valet man sprang at him. Naturally, they'll think that he took the jewels, especially as they won't find them on him. A man who can open a locked safe through a closed door is just the sort of fellow who would be able to get rid of the swag neatly while rolling about the floor with the valet. His not having the jewels will make the case all the blacker against him. And what will make them still more certain that he is the thief is that he is really a detective. Spike, you ought to be in some sort of a home, you know. The Bowery boy looked disturbed. I didn't think of that, boss, he admitted. Of course not. One can't think of everything. Now, if you will just hand me those diamonds, I will put them back where they belong. Put them back, boss? What else would you propose? I'd get you to do it. Only I don't think putting things back is quite in your line. Spike handed over the jewels. The boss was the boss, and what he said went. But his demeanor was tragic, telling eloquently of hopes blighted. Jimmy took the necklace with something of a thrill. He was a connoisseur of jewels, and a fine gem affected him much as a fine picture affects the artistic. He ran the diamonds through his fingers, then scrutinized them again, more closely this time. Spike watched him with a slight return of hope. It seemed to him that the boss was wavering. Perhaps now that he had actually handled the jewels, he would find it impossible to give them up. To Spike, a diamond necklace of cunning workmanship was merely the equivalent of so many plunks. But he knew that there were men, otherwise sane, who valued a jewel for its own sake. It's a boy of a necklace, boss! he murmured encouragingly. It is, said Jimmy, in its way. I have never seen anything much better. Sir Thomas will be glad to have it back. Then you're going to put it back, boss? I am, said Jimmy. I'll do it just before the theatricals. There should be a chance then. There's one good thing. This afternoon's affair will have cleared the air of sleuth-hounds a little. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of The Intrusion of Jimmy, Part 5 of 7, by P.G. Woodhouse. If you've enjoyed this episode, please become a monthly supporter so we can keep this good thing going. Go to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a supporter today. And thanks for pitching in. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me next time and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper.
Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. <laughs>